Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. Why is the UK a world leader in the tech sector R&D, yet there's not a single high-growth software business listed on the FTSE 100? Does leaving the European Union threaten the tech sector, or does Brexit provide Britain with the opportunities, and if so, how and where? Dr Mike Lynch, OBE, has been variously described as Britain's answer to Bill Gates, Britain's most successful technology entrepreneur, and in the Financial Times as the doyen of European software. He co-founded Autonomy Corporation, which was later sold to Hewlett-Packard in a deal that remains the subject of litigation, and his Invoke Capital Fund is a major investor in Britain's burgeoning AI sector. In this podcast, political editor Graham Stewart talks to Mike about what policies are needed to change if the UK's tech sector is going to thrive in the future. Mike Lynch, we're going to talk in a moment about why Britain's impressive record in technology innovation, which has uh, been in part achieved through its openness and its internationalism, is also threatened at the corporate level by these same forces of openness and internationalism. But I want to start with uh, what we might call Exhibit A, Arm Holdings, a Cambridge-based software company that designs much of the world's chips and which has just been bought by the American company NVIDIA. You've been one of the major players in developing the British tech sector in Cambridge and beyond. Um, is ARM not exactly the sort of strategic British company that no government should sensibly allow to go to a foreign competitor? Or would guarantees on it remaining Cambridge headquartered be sufficient? I think the thing to understand about ARM is it's a very special case. So what you have there is a company whose processes are found in, in pretty much everything around the world. And I think to sort of cut to a shorthand, if I was uh, the Chinese premier and you said I can have Huawei or I can have ARM, I'd have ARM. So it's an incredibly strategic asset. And I think the thing that um, is starting to become apparent over the last few years is that in the new world that we're looking at, strategic technology assets become very important in terms of a country's role and position in the world hierarchy. And um, is, is, it, is it too late, really, for the government to intervene? I mean, it was already sold by the, to the, uh, the Japanese uh, uh, conglomerate SoftBank. I mean, is, is the past sold there, or it, it, can, can we still roll back? I see Herman Hauser is saying it, it should be uh, uh, listed on, on, on the FTSE 100, but uh, is, is, is the parcel for, for arm holdings already? Well, you would, you would think it probably is a bit too late. Having said that, you know, the, the current government has shown itself to be quite courageous in many matters in a way that wouldn't have been expected before. If there was one company that we really did not want to see leave, it's certainly arm. But perhaps the, the, the seeds of the current problem was, was sown when it was allowed for it to be sold to SoftBank. And that's the nature of these things in that, you know, the, the SoftBank ownership didn't have some of the problems that the NVIDIA ownership will have. But the problem is once you let it start to go, you lose the control over it. And so you end up in this situation now where NVIDIA, if it owns ARM, will be in a position where it's controlling so much of the strategic technology, and that will be at the behest of the US government. And 
you might think that's all well and good as long as the US and the UK interests align. But if they diverge, uh, then you know we have let go of something which is a strategic asset and an important part of our sovereignty. So, I mean, I'm wondering how unusual Britain's um, general history of being relaxed about the sale of assets of this kind uh, is. I mean, if, if a British company wanted to buy, let's say, well, let's say NVIDIA, um, could it do so or would US regulators intervene? Uh, it's very, very unlikely that would be allowed. Um, there are a whole set of rules in the US which takers have had to go through. Uh, things called CFIUS, for example, which are very explicit. Um, they're about um, the strategic importance and the benefit of uh, the US government. And uh, I think it would be unthinkable um, for NVIDIA to be sold to uh, a foreign company. And of course, we've seen CFIUS used uh, over the years many times by the US government to stop strategic assets all the way from ports to other things being sold to other investors from overseas. So in, in the tech sector, I mean, what makes a strategic asset? And I mean, is the man or woman in Whitehall very good at, at distinguishing what, what, what a British asset would be? I mean, the experience of the 1970s probably suggests not. Well, it, we're not talking about subtle things here. We're talking about the, the extreme cases. You know, I, I absolutely would not be a believer in um, every single takeover being uh, analysed in Whitehall. But when you get to a situation where you've got obvious world leaders that are way ahead of anyone else, both either in their technology or their market impact, it's actually not that difficult to spot them. You know, the failure of the 1970s was usually trying to spot what would become important. Uh, we're talking about things here which are glaringly, obviously important. Uh, you know, and the simple test for Whitehall is, imagine if, um, if the UK government um, did what uh, the US government did over Huawei, but with ARM, what would the reaction in the world be? Well, that tells you it's a strategic asset. Uh, I'm interested in exploring what, what has made them strategic assets. Uh, Britain is a, with its university sector and uh, um, uh, technology base, it is a world re leader in research and development. We seem to be very good at the innovation level, but uh, but, but not very good at, at retaining the companies that, that result in Britain. Is that a failure of regulation, uh, by which I think I ultimately mean we're, we're not protective enough, or is there, is there something wrong with our capital markets? Well, I mean, what, you know, London's one of the world financial centres. Why, why is it that it doesn't seem, it seems to be better at allowing companies to be sold abroad than, than to actually um, uh, provide the, the capital to keep them here? Well, there, we could have, we could probably spend a day on the answer to your question. Some of it goes back uh, in, into fairly fundamental aspects of our culture and the idea of the gentleman scientist versus others. Um, you know, if you're interested in that, then I think C.P. Snow pretty well covered it in The New Men. So, um, you know, an excellent introduction to that dilemma uh, as it was happening then. Now, having said that, whilst I think Britain certainly suffered from that, there had been a series of policy interventions starting with Tony Blair and um, moving on from there, which really have fixed a lot of the problems. So, you know, if you're a bright um, graduate now and you have, a, a, you know, an engineering degree, you no longer want to go into the city, you want to do a startup. And we have um, not only an amazing science base in this country, which we've always had possibly because of that gentleman science culture, 
Um, but we now have um, really great startup scene and we have a lot of good mid-sized companies. So we have fixed a lot of those problems. What's happening now is that our great companies are getting to about three or $400 million worth of market cap at the point where they're just about to go out and really um, take over the world. The technology is all proven and they're snapped up by foreign acquirers. So the classic examples of this a company called Selexa, which is now at the basis of um, gene sequencing all over the world. And that was bought by an American company called Lumina. Uh, and then, of course, DeepMinds, which is, is powering many of the uh, amazing step forwards that we're seeing coming out of Google. So to answer your question, yes, the London capital markets have failed. The fact that we don't have uh, any high-growth software companies in the FTSE 100 just shows how disconnected from modern economies uh, the functioning of that market has been. And so what it leads to is investors making a purely rational decision to say, well, I don't have a functioning home market for these kind of companies. So when someone turns up and offers me $400 million, I've got two choices. I either have to really sort of put my head down and keep going and try and get it up to a few billion dollars where it could be listed on NASDAQ in the American market, um, or I sell out. And what we need to do is fix these problems so that these companies don't sell out and rather like the arms or the autonomies of their days, they become multi-billion dollar businesses. And then we have the very high class problem of discussing whether we are happy for it to be bought by someone else for $40 billion. Well, the, the, the diagnosis is almost the, the, the easy part. The, you know, how to fix it is, is where it gets tricky. Um, is, is, is Brexit an opportunity or, or a threat? And if it's an opportunity, what would you like to see happening? Well, I think that the, let me just deal with the threat side of it first, because it's, it's relatively containable as long as you understand um, how these companies and technologies appear. We have something incredible in the UK, which is our science base, which is frankly second to none. If we were any other country having our conversation, we'd be trying to work out how we get that science base. We already have that. Now, the important thing to understand about that in the context of Brexit is that modern science is a collaborative thing and the funding mechanisms are all set up uh, through the EU programs. We're actually a net beneficiary of that. But we need to make sure that in the transition, we don't push the baby out of the bathwater. We have to keep that science base because that's the asset. That's like the, the oil under the ground. You know, that, that's the bit that you just can't get anywhere else. And so and we have to make sure that there's a smooth transition so that there's no effect to that science base. And then the second thing is to understand that Silicon Valley is full of people who don't come from Silicon Valley. So the reason that Silicon Valley is successful is it's open to the very brightest. So this is a rather different debate than the general immigration one. We're not talking about, um, you know, whether we want Polish builders or not. We're talking about the very best and brightest in the world. And what we need to do is make sure that those people still feel welcome and can come here, do their research here and set up companies that employ lots of Brits. And that really leads us on to where the opportunity is. If we are in a situation where we're unshackled from Europe and we have the ability to set our own course, I believe that course should be one that acknowledges the modern world. And the modern world is technology-led. 
And we can be more forward-looking, more ambitious and more courageous than the European bureaucrats that we've left behind. And what we can do is create Britain as a place that you come to do this technology. We have the most important thing, the science base. What we can do is make the regulatory framework in all these different areas like AI and pharma match the science that's going on. You know, we have regulatory frameworks for medicines all about cohorts. A lot of modern medicine is about personalizing it to one person. It doesn't work. We have frameworks around things like uh, autonomous vehicles out of Europe that are just not workable. So we have an amazing ability to create a place where you come to do these things with the right people. It's a pleasant place to come. We have to be welcoming uh, to the experts that come in um, to help us with doing those things and make them want to stay and set up their companies here. And we need to put out that sign that this is where you come. Britain is the place to do your really advanced technology because we are about the future. We're not about the past. And, uh, you know, we can do that. Um, it affects all areas, you know. Why do we have airliners in the sky? Well, we have airliners in the sky because someone came up with conventions around the legal framework and insurance framework for airliners. Without them, we wouldn't have that. Well, we need to do the same sort of thing. If autonomous vehicles statistically are safer than my father's driving, then we need to acknowledge that rapidly in a legal framework, not take 20 years to do it. And then the UK becomes the place to lead. And I think this is a great opportunity. It also means that we can do things like, say, come to the UK, do your R&D here. And uh, while you're doing the risky bit, you know, we'll give you a great R&D tax credit. We want it back when you're successful. That's one of the things that's been forgotten in the past. But people don't have a problem paying it back once they're successful. Um, so the whole idea needs to be to take Brexit as an opportunity that says, this is the place. Britain is about being courageous and the future, and we're going to move faster than people that are held up in chains of bureaucracy. I think our listeners would be very keen just to um, um, go a bit further on that point, just to sketch out, I mean, some of the areas of European regulation or European restriction, which really prevents the sort of uh, uh, growth and, and innovation you're, you're talking about. What, what would you like to see, uh, which regulations in particular would you like to see reformed or removed, or is it more a, a matter of the tax structure changing? I think, that, I think this is the wonderful thing. There is a whole spectrum here of things that can, can be done once one is free of all of the conflicting historical legacy um, ideas that you have from Europe. So how things are tested. So for example, we're talking about um, testing of pharma. Being in a position where, for example, we have very serious diseases, allowing um, the pharma regulations to allow drugs to be tested more rapidly in a situation where um, you've got a relatively small number of patients. So, for example, rare diseases is a very difficult area to do regulation if you're based on cohort thinking. Another example would be the insurance and legal frameworks around autonomous vehicles. You know, the reality is those things will only be successful if they are safer than human drivers. What we can't do is just allow the first few times one of these things crashes, we end up with ridiculous lawsuits. Um, as long as the things in general are safer, then we need to get to a normal working model like we do with human drivers. So allowing that to go forward, fintech, 
areas where we regulate, but we do it in a way that acknowledges the difference that we now see in how uh, the world is working. So we have a series of advice there. It's not for which ones are good or bad, but you know, are we prepared to be more sophisticated in doing things like virtual currencies? Um, how are we going to think about how people actually fund things? What's the difference between crowdsourcing and a stock market? Um, where do we have false differential um, regulatory arbitrage? You know, what's the difference between content online and content which uh, is being broadcast by television? Well, the regulatory framework is very different, but these days, how it's actually delivered may be the same, same method. I think there's a whole series of these sort of areas. Other things we need to think about are the talent. You know, we need to be sophisticated in our debate about immigration. I don't think anyone rationally would not want a Nobel Prize winner to come to this country. Yet at the moment, it's very difficult to get that process working. It is there, but it's not one that's easy and it's not welcoming. We want Nobel Prize winners in this country. We want them to do their work here. We want them to employ people here. We want supply chain for them to be here. Those are things that we have to think about changing. And then a lot of it is about creating a cluster. We have this incredible science base. You know, if you want to do AI research, it's one of the places to do it. But let's really signal that. Let's show that the government is friendly to this idea. And that's where I think a more sophisticated use of tax policy. So I don't think you need to use taxpayers' money to fund this revolution. What I think you can do is, first of all, use it to signal a difference, to make the point that this is a priority here and you're welcome to come and do this here. But secondly, realize that these things shouldn't be speculative. So if we look at, for example, how something like Innovate UK works at the moment, it's got that classic grant mentality. Now, the problem for grant mentality is you get some very clever scientist and they get a grant and they do something and then they get the next grant and the next grant and the next grant. Well, actually, there's a point where mother has to throw the chicks out of the nest and they have to fly. And we need to be unashamed in saying, right, you've got three grants, you better go and sell something. We might give you a fourth if you're selling something, but we're not going to give you a fourth if you're carrying on because coming back to the cultural idea of the gentleman scientist, too often in the UK, I meet people producing wonderful things but don't want to get their hands dirty selling. Well, we need to acknowledge that if taxpayer money is being used, the taxpayer has to see a return. Another example is the universities and technology transfer. So the taxpayer is often funded for research universities but a taxpayer doesn't get what it needs back if that technology becomes successful. At the moment, it's a highly frictioned, uh, balkanized method where each university chancellor often quite ignorantly tries to, to set up some sort of power grab for money, which completely undermines the possibility of these technologies being used. The government really could go in there, radically change that, make four or five different models that people just subscribe to, you know, it's insane to me that when someone wants to take a piece of technology from university lab and start a company, they often have to pay 50 or 60,000 pounds in legal fees. It should be a standard form. And uh, the reason that that happens is you can't pick the winners. 
So what you don't want to do is spend, as a university, 50 or £60,000 on legal fees and get the other side to spend 50 or £60,000 on legal fees, put in some ridiculous royalty, which means a product never ships. What you want to do is you want to see 100 people do this, and one of them will be successful. And then as long as that point, you perhaps own 3 or 4% of that company in return for technology, the university gets money, the taxpayer's getting paid back, but we haven't stood in the way. We haven't created friction. So those are areas that we can do to get the technology moving. In terms of the London market, it's really, we've been unfortunate in a, um, a vicious circle in that as these companies like Arm are acquired or autonomy, uh, or they get aligned, we've started, we've seen a situation where in the FTSE 100, there just aren't enough of these businesses. So, a FTSE 100 manager is judged by performance relative to peers who, of course, also aren't investing in software. So what you don't get is among the London investment personnel necessarily the expertise to deal with these technologies and companies. And once you don't have the expertise to deal with them, then those companies are less likely to list in London. And so you end up pretty soon uh, with a situation where those companies aren't listing in London Therefore, the fund managers aren't becoming so skilled in those companies. Therefore, fewer companies are listing in London. And we end up in the situation we're in now. So what we need to do is turn that round. And we actually don't need to do very much. A few of these companies in the London market and fund managers would have to respond. Almost all of the current U.S. stock market uh, performance is down to the five tech businesses. So when these are going, you can't ignore them. So the question is, how do we pump prime that? Well, I think what we need to do is um, have mechanisms. And one of the, there's been a whole series of suggestions of policy here. They're quite technical. But ideas, for example, that when a company does delist from London, uh, a small fee is paid, which is used to fund research into tech businesses, uh, which can, can be given to London managers to help them have a resource to understand these things. Very successful in dealing with the um, the startup problem were some of the um, venture capital trust type schemes, which basically gave a little bit of advantage uh, in terms of tax treatment to investing in these riskier companies. And that, um, that really has had a, a, a night and day change on that. Well, why not extend that even if the companies are listed? If you um, invest in one of these companies within it coming to the market, um, then for a few years, you have the ability to have a slightly better tax situation. And what that does is it leverages the very large amount of private money to put the extra bit of effort in um, to actually learn about these new businesses. And that in turn is also a reason why those businesses will list. After a while, when we have four or five of them, this won't be a problem, it'll be self-sustaining. Now, there are lots and lots of ideas like this. Various papers have been produced for government. And I do think that if we take this idea of having an overall position and strategy, that the UK is going to create value from technology, um, then these things can be fixed. At the end of the day, you, you have to come back to one simple idea, as the chairman of Rolls Royce once said to me, you know, in the UK, you've got three sources of wealth. You can either dig something out of the ground, and sadly we're not sitting on vast gold reserves, 
you can grow it. Well, our farmers are pretty efficient as it is, and we have limited land mass. Or you can use know-how to turn something from one thing into something more valuable. That has to be our option going forward. And, and this starts from a, a, a change in regulation. Do you feel that this government gets that? Or is there going to be a, a lot of persuasion that's needed before we see real uh, um, movement? I think the government um, does understand that in making the, the transition from Europe, uh, we have lost some things, but we have the possibility of gaining much more. But to do that, we have to implement a change and we have to take advantage of our opportunity. And our opportunity after Europe is to set things in a way which allow us to be more forward-looking than Europe can be, allow us to move faster than Europe can be, and really capitalise on the things that we have that Europe doesn't have, such as our science base. So I think the, the understanding of that is there. I think the important thing is that the government has to put this forward as a coherent strategy. The UK is about the future. It is about technology. Um, it is about creating strategic technology and understanding the importance of that. And then it has to understand how to do that. And, of course, that's often the harder bit. You know, one can be very easily tempted into the idea that something like, um, you know, the, using state funds to invest in companies is a good idea. It probably isn't. But there are much more sophisticated ways in which you can actually um, uh, grow this landscape. Uh, some of those are policies. Some of them are to do with incentives. But yes, I agree with what you were saying earlier. The idea of going back to 1970s attempt by Whitehall to pick the winners in technology um, won't work. Well, it, it's it's a note of, of hope uh, and a note we will have to leave it there on. But uh, Dr. Mike Lynch, OB, thank you very much for joining us on The Critic Podcast. Thank you. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.